Welcome to The Evidence-Based Therapist, a podcast where we read so you don't have to. Here you'll find three therapists discussing cutting-edge research articles, explaining why and how people work together to find healing. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to. We are back in the studio today with Melissa and Caleb and I, Bridger, and we are uh, in the midst of our series on um, the latest model that we've been kind of exploring, which is looking at where anthropology, neurobiology, and ego psychology or self-state psychology um, intersect and what role shame plays in that dynamic. Um, so we've been looking at different articles that talk about shame and the neurobiology of shame, what influences that has on neurodevelopment and how we conceptualize self. Um, and so we decided to pick an article today that is a little bit different from the articles we've been reviewing in that it is a quantitative methods uh, article. And just to give you all a refresher um, for those um, that are maybe just tuning in or who aren't super familiar with different types of research, um, quantitative Methods is one method of uh, experimental research designs where you're looking at um, a measure of some kind, um, such as like an instrument or even like a screener, and you're comparing um, some sample on that screener, whether that be between subjects or between um, just an individual across time or something like that. Whereas qualitative methods, which is another form of experimental research design, is looking at more of like a survey or a questionnaire mm-hmm. or a larger interview style interview. Yeah. to um, glean more data than just can be answered on a yes or no or a mm-hmm. rate year experience yeah, or whatever. Likert scale. Yeah. yeah, some type of Likert scale. Qualitative tends to be more story focused rather yeah. than measurement focused. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So for the purposes of this article, the quantitative um, elements are in the instrumentation and the way that they assessed that and measured it across the two populations. And we'll get more into that. But here on The Evidence-Based Therapist, we are you know, just consumers of research in general. And so we're going to be coming across very different types of literature. And we want you guys as a community to kind of be familiar with what it means to consume different types of literature mm-hmm. and different types of research designs because conceptual articles, which is what we've kind of reviewed up to now, um, are more so tasked with explaining a concept and um, h- how that concept or concepts are relevant to the a f- larger field of study. Mm-hmm. Whereas a quantitative study like this is using a lot of that conceptual work and then saying, can we observe this mm-hmm. empirically or statistically mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in a sample? Yeah. Can we measure kind? it in right. a replicatable way? Can we yeah. see it mm-hmm. in you know the, the wild, so to speak, and actually interpret it? Um, so that's what this article set out to do, and um, it is by Murris et al. And the publication date, uh, twenty fourteen, yeah. yeah, twenty thirteen, yeah. it was published, mm-hmm. and it is entitled "Bound to Feel Bad About Oneself: Relations Between Attachment and the Self-Conscious Emotions of Guilt and Shame in Children and Adolescents." Mm-hmm. Um, so that "Bound to Feel Bad About Oneself," um, I actually re- reviewed this article for. Uh, work that I was doing in my doctoral program around the organization of mind, which is a structural term and what shame does to the brain over time. So I thought, you know, it would be a great article to review here because to me, it elucidates quantitatively um, what is so prolific in the literature conceptually. Mm -hmm. It says yes and to um, 
the theorists that are defining a lot of these terms just linguistically or um, as they observe in theory. Anecdotally. Yeah, anecdotally yeah. and in other reading other things. So it's important to me that we always have both, that we work with a quantitative and qualitative uh, research design and can un- interpret and include a lot of different types of literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the way this is going to read uh, or listen, I guess, um, is a little bit different than the other articles that we've done because it is quantitative. So what we'd kind of set out to do is to talk about the article in the beginning of the episode and then have our commentary kind of follow that larger description rather than piece by piece go through each concept because it doesn't really flow that way in the article. Mm-hmm. So um, do any of you have, do either of you have any comments before we jump in? Just general ideas? Yeah, no, just the, you know, I think that the difference of consuming information that is quantitative rather than qualitative, most therapists are probably most comfortable reading and consuming qualitative information yeah or conceptual yeah Yeah. um because that is very much kind of the world that we live in we live in the world of story anecdote um and the human lived experience of something and a lot of books are more conceptual in psychotherapy than they are quantitative yeah yeah and i think just in general there's a lot of us that have um some discomfort and even Mm. anxiety about consuming quantitative research because you know we hearken back to research methods and statistical analysis in grad school and get a stomach ache when we think about it (laughs) i mean maybe not the two of you yes some of us the rest of us us. (laughs) and then some of us teach that stuff and feel sad when other people talk about it well in a negative way but you're setting out to give people a different embodied experience experience. Mm. this can be enjoyable that's right (laughs) it can be um, but I think that, you know, when we approach research that has a more quantitative focus, um, really having a different mindset about what what am I trying to get out of this? Yes. Like, what is the point of this? And so I liked your introduction, Bridger, of this is something that um, elucidates, confirms, and deepens yes. the more qualitative work that we're used to encountering. So while some of the ideas may not feel mm-hmm. super new, um, and in some ways they're very intuitive and a lot of the time we're going to say, well, yeah, that makes total sense. That doesn't surprise me at all. Um, but it's the fact that now we have, uh, research from a quantitative perspective that is validating that and yeah. saying, um, it is valid and these are the ways in which it's valid, mm-hmm. um, and adding some nuance to those yeah. hypotheses. And so it's a way of supporting that qualitative yeah. work. I'm, uh, in a lot of the work that I do as a professor of research methods and statistics is helping my students understand, um, what, what does the process actually look like when you set out to ask a question? Um, and you have so many different options to choose from and Mel to your point about what is the benefit of these multitude of, of inspections Mm -hmm. is that we have so many different ways of making meaning out of what we're asking of a population or of, you know, literature review or whatever Mm -hmm. it is. So quantitative, you know, it, it isn't everything and it does have its shortcomings. Mm -hmm. Um, and this article kind of represents some of those and, and how narrow it has to be to become measurable. But a big head nod from Caleb there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we and I even think, the narrowness. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think we'll even like experience that in the form of the way we talk about the article. Yeah, and that we will be very like affirmative of the very specific dynamic that it studies, uh-huh. and then also probably 
launch off into our own explorations of different dynamics that yeah. the study could not uh-huh. study or analyze because it has rigorous research has to be so fine-tuned yes and so isolating the variables yes to make sure that you're measuring what you're say what you say you're measuring and that you're aware of what you're not measuring yeah yes and explicitly state that yes exactly and then by doing so you can then form more interesting comparisons uh statistically um and actually pull out you know no it's not this element that caused the effect that we saw it's actually this one mm-hmm. or it's a combination of these two yeah um, and so it is interesting, but to me, the the amount of editing that has to go into making a variable as small as it can be to be measurable makes us lose a lot of the context. Yes. Yeah. And for this, this study is a great one in, in its example that we need the work of Crittenden. Uh-huh. We need the work of Perry. We need all that we've worked through on the podcast already to further make meaning out of this quantitative. Yeah analysis. So, uh, without further ado, uh, just kind of the kind of overview of the article was that, um, these researchers set out to compare a clinical sample and a non-clinical sample, mm-hmm. clinical sample, um, being one that is exhibiting some type of effect, um, which for this article was the, um, type of trauma and the type of, uh, attachment figure mm-hmm. or attachment relationship that they had. Mm-hmm. And then in the non-clinical sample, they use that as a as a control or a comparison group to say, you know, this the elements or the um, environment or the symptoms or whatever that the clinical sample is exhibiting. This is what it would look like if they weren't exhibiting that. Mm-hmm. And for this sample, they had a very large control group and a smaller um, actual experimental group. And so in that, they compared them on two different measures, one of a vignette-based kind of measure that was looking at the attachment style, and then another of um, the The schemas. Yes, the different schemas that they were exhibiting. The experience of self-conscious emotions. Yes, yes. And in that, they were hoping to see, can we demonstrate a difference between the type of um, self-conscious experience of guilt and shame and the attachment Mm -hmm. styles Mm -hmm. and they were looking at that in the clinical population and then the the non-clinical control group Mm -hmm. yeah so any other thoughts on just the overview um well it's it's two studies Mm -hmm. yes so one study is um children nine to 13 years of old Mm -hmm. and that was using the aqc attachment questionnaire for children uh, which is just looking at um, the attachments, self-reported attachment style. Mm -hmm. So basically they're given these sort of three series of statements that um, categorize them in ambivalent, avoidant, or secure attachment. Mm -hmm. Um, So then they took that, and then they also took the schemas, which is the uh, self-conscious emotions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, With the ambivalent and avoidant, I want to, for the listeners, talk about how that relates to what we've talked about previously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And if we want to do that now, I don't know. Yeah. No, I think, you know, having context really on what these words mean in this context is always helpful. Yes. And this is one of the, for me, one of the limitations of the study was it was just observing insecure versus secure. Mm -hmm. And the way that they then defined insecure was looking at ambivalent and avoidant. 
mm-hmm. um, and making no space for, because of the limitations of the measure, the disorganized right. uh, characterizations of attachment. Mm-hmm. And even farther, you know, we've talked about Crittenden on the podcast before, that is a developmental model. And so there's, there's not as clean of categories right. to then start uh, self-reporting into. Yeah. Spectrumized. Yes, so it's more spectrumized. So um, the avoidant is what we would classically know of as the dismissive avoidant, and the ambivalent is the uh, yeah. preoccupied. preoccupied. Right. Yep. And even that language is a little mm-hmm. different mm-hmm. of the ambivalent of what does that mean. Right. And uh, just by that word, I just naturally would associate that more with a dismissive type yeah. than I would with an anxious preoccupied, yep. which or is even interesting. even a disorganized type. Yes. Yeah. yes. The uh, ambi is the ambi. of two minds. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like, yeah. To be ambivalent means to be of two minds about something. Yes. And so that, to me, feels a little bit, um, yeah, not like a match. Yeah. 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 And so that is just further showing what the researchers had to do in making it as measurable as possible, Uh which is simplifying it into categories that can be easily self-reported into. That's a concept that's that's phrased when talking about the validity mm-hmm. of a measure is can it actually measure what yeah. we're hoping it can well and i think one of the things that this article did uh towards the end was self-reflect in mm. the limitations of yeah you know were the measurements um the tools of measurement yeah adequate actually yeah, yeah actually getting to the core of what they were trying to measure while the tools themselves have been shown to be internally valid. That's not necessarily the same thing as saying, okay, we were getting to the core of what we were yes. trying to, to get to with this. And um, to me, one of my big reactions to reading this article was a, a general reflection on the challenge of measuring shame. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Like that really stood out just in the way that they were discussing it and the, the way that they were, um, you know, looking at how they had to choose these different measurements and were they really getting to where they wanted to go is that's incredibly difficult. Yeah. Um, and when you start looking at tools that use self-measurement and you're relying on the accuracy of reporting of the individual, but then now we're looking at children yeah. and their accuracy of self-report. Mm-hmm. And so there's just kind of layer upon layer of complication, which by no means negates the findings of this article. And I yeah. think... Or invalidates yeah, necessarily. Yeah. yeah. But I think that um, there's a lot to be kind of experienced as a therapist in terms of recognizing just how hard it is to get concrete information about the human experience of these self-referencing emotions. Yeah, and this is going to come up later and as we interpret some of these results from our perspective. But I think even just talking a little bit about why shame is hard to measure through Mm self-report right now Mm -hmm. (laughs) would be helpful just in framing this conversation. For me, and when I set out to look into this in my program, I just knew from my previous experience in working with shame empirically that there is a lot of discourse or a lot of conversation in the literature about the ways of measuring shame. Right. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to look at it through a quantitative measure, we've got problems mm-hmm. because we have to be able to, again, demonstrate it uh, reliably and validly over the course of mm-hmm. multiple participants that are taking the same measure over and over right. and over again. Right. So if you're looking at it from that lens and you have those needs of the measure, making it um, peer uh, reported or looking at an administered survey that is then interpreted through um, a uh, kind of rater or something Mm -hmm. like that, you run into different issues with interpreting those. Um, 
those instruments. So self-report, if we're going to do a quantitative self-report, is the way that the literature has gone because it still relies on a person's ability to reflect internally on their experience of a question mm -hmm. or of a survey item. And then because of an intervention, we can measure the effect that the intervention had because right. it's still by that person right. that the next measure or the same measure at time two is being administered. Right. So if we're going to, if, you know, the goal of the survey or the goal of the research. research is to demonstrate the effectiveness or the impact of an intervention of some kind or an event, self-report is going to be mm -hmm. demonstrating some type of change. So they want to have that. For this though, this is an interesting need to have a self-report measure because we're looking at it one time. Mm -hmm. We're looking at just one reading, one mm -hmm. picture of a population on their two um, assessments that they were looking at and then comparing it across that. So it's a very interesting way of doing it. Well, and it's kind of, um, there. there's two levels of self-report. There's a self-report in regards to uh, their attachment style, mm -hmm. the way they experience yeah. attachment, but then there's a report of their own experience of shame. Yes. And now that I think had a little bit more, um, th like the way that they interpreted that to me felt like there was a lot uh, less room for error mm. um, in terms of the Likert scale and yeah. measuring, you know, various different questions. And so when I was reading like the different ways that they did this, that one to me felt a lot more valid on mm. the surface than asking a child about their attachment style. Yeah. <laughs> like me mm. trying to imagine any child that I know having something uh, in them that's self-reflective enough to say, oh yeah, you know, I, I feel insecurely attached to my parent. What? Like that. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm sure, I'm sure that the questions that they're selecting are not that direct and are kind of getting around um, some of those challenges, but still trying to imagine how to create a measurement tool for children yeah. to self-report accurately yes. about their own attachment experience just seems like a well, tremendous see, challenge. And that to me is such the, the just recognizing the awe that is in what, task is faced to the researchers that are mm -hmm. wanting to and because that i still want to know for children how they experience yes. attachment and shame well so, that was actually the genesis of yes. the article like they reflected on okay well we have these uh, correlative quantitative studies yeah. that show yeah there is a high correlation between your attachment experience and your experience of shame but there was nothing for children yeah later in life yeah yes and i think potentially this is why like yes. finding accurate ways of measuring these two things in a child um yeah it's a Tremendous right. challenge. Because you you the the reality of the experience is still so meaningful to the to the research community. Mm -hmm. What does it mean if we can demonstrate these same results that we found in assessing a, a adults, right. if we can demonstrate that same thing early in life? Right. Well that means that it started earlier and the effects compounded over mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. That is really meaningful, especially when you start thinking about, well, how does this have implications for the way we treat children uh -huh. in clinical populations and in non-clinical populations. Well, and the way that we interpret the presentations. Yes. Um, you know, there's some some nuance in this article about the different kinds of shame, the different kinds of guilt, the yeah. ruminating guilt, et cetera, or the strange places where um, guilt almost doesn't exist even when it should. Like there's some really yeah. uh, relevant pieces that they were measuring that um, you know, I think is incredibly important as a therapist to understand the way that we interpret the presentation of a child that would be very different than what we would be looking at in an adult. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're both looking at Caleb. Where, where are you, Caleb? Yeah. <laughs> Bridger um, and I have been I'm, chatting for yeah. a long time. Where have you been? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm with you. I was, I've, I've thought about interjecting several times. Um, 
one of the things that I think is um, interesting about, because really what we're talking about is shame is like a, such an umbrella construct. Mm-hmm. There's so many variants. Um, and what we're saying is it's in the deepest core part of our being and yeah. the deep affect mm-hmm. of circuits mm-hmm. and emerges from there. Yes. But then you also have attachment style, which is also the exact same. Mm-hmm. And that, um, you know, if you talk to Dan Brown and David Elliott, yes. uh, attachment disturbances in adults, they say by 18 to 24 months, your attachment, it, your attachment style is um, mostly embedded. Mostly solidified. Solidified. Yeah. And um, it's going to present itself in relational ways. Yeah. Um, starting there, yeah, um, and in very patterned way. So, I think it's it's interesting to note the the we, struggle that the authors have with this and how they try to get around, yeah, that as a research team, um, yeah. And there's such interesting neurobiological discussions about how to measure one the um, influences that attachment and shame experiences mm-hmm. have on the developing mind. Not just saying conceptually, we, we evidence this, but when they actually look at brain morphometry or something mm-hmm. like that, and they're trying to assess what impact does early relational trauma and shame actually have on the developing mind um, in its development. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the, and that was kind of the basis for the paper that I wrote of what is observable neocortically uh, as you still have undeveloped regions of the, of the higher cortex that this that are depending on the development of the lower regions in the brain. Mm -hmm. We've talked a lot about that, but that one of the studies that I found that was also really interesting, um, was that there are, um, there are more primitive or primary processes that are in charge of interpreting what later become higher brain region functions. And -hmm. that there are actually multiple different ways that the lower parts of the brain in earlier life, um, go about making meaning of other people's emotions and other people's reference to them as self. And that's what this is kind of getting at in the age ranges of nine to 18 years old of now we have some development in those higher regions of the brain where we can Mm -hmm. actually say observably through different brain scan techniques that no, this activity is going on and is structurally dependent on some of these different areas in the brain. But, uh, looking deeper into the brain is really what we're interested in doing as a, as an agency or as a practice and as, as academics ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, and the way that we do that is looking at correlational, um, kind of conceptual articles and then animal studies, which we've talked about before of the necessity for, but this article to me is getting at, you know, what comes out of the developing mind as they have these experiences. And we look at it in these inter, um, kind of adolescent years, Mm -hmm. um, what is observable. When we start talking about attachment yeah. and self-conscious emotions. Yeah. So I'm going to circle all the way back. So the first study does the um, AQC and then the schemas. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just, I mean, that, I say just, but that's 668 children, <laughs> ages 900, just. 9 to It's a large population. That's a huge sample size. Like six schools in the Netherlands. Yes. Um, yeah. yes. Very robust. Um, the second study, though, is actually a clinical population. So these yes. are mm. kids with um, severe externalizing problems that have them in treatment. And they are given uh, an IPPA, mm-hmm. which is a dimensional is scale. Mm-hmm. A dimensional scale given to both the, the peer or the, the child and their parents. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so they get kind of a two, uh, um, a dual perspective yeah. uh, on the attachment style. Can, and it, you, can you uh, define real quick what you mean by severe externalizing? 
severe externalizing would be like um, anger management mm-hmm. problems. Mm-hmm. You're getting Conduct in trouble with the law. Yeah. Yes. Oppositional yeah. defiant. Yeah. Substance use. Uh, yeah. Something that like in America we'd probably see is like residential treatment yeah. worthy. Or at least you're Juvenile referred detention. to some sort of outpatient yeah. because mm-hmm. of your problem, your right. external problems of behavior. Right. Um, yeah. So, and then in study two, they're also given the schemas. Um, yeah. I think the the nature of the um, type of problems associated with the clinical population is another kind of interesting idea we'll get to later on when we're interpreting some of the limitations mm-hmm. of the study. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does help make sense of the results, um, which is that where you want to go next, Caleb? Or yeah. do you have more uh, to say on um, that? No, I think uh, uh, unless this is your time to get 30 seconds into an ANOVA and, and COVA analysis of variants and yes. analysis of covariance. Well, yeah. So I think we should talk about it a little bit, uh, but okay. not. Okay. <laughs> ready. Mel had some reservations before we started recording on. How long we spend on the statistical I want to explore portion. your discomfort right now. I, so I much. feel like that is relevant simply because I know that my discomfort with statistical analysis is shared by 90% of therapists. I feel pretty confident. It's generous. Yeah. Yeah. I'm 99%. I mean, what are we going oh, here? Oh, <laughs> there it is. All right. Okay, Caleb. The vast majority of it us. It is then our task now to make it approachable oh, and relatable. Wow. That okay. is quite a task. Yeah. Yes. And you've got yeah. 30 seconds to do it. Oh, gosh. Go. Okay. Actually, 30 seconds. Are you going to give me chocolate? To make it better. Better? I mean, you're going to like feed me and Do you have any more coffee? <laughs> Just no? Yeah. <laughs> Listeners, if you are feeling the... Uh, mirror neurons activate of trepidation that Melissa is feeling. Uh-huh. I just encourage you to take some breaths. Yeah, it's going to be okay. And, uh, right. yeah, well, Caleb, I've got... revisiting... I've got the description of an ANOVA and an ANCOVA. Okay. Um, if you want to then interpret how they used it. Okay. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. I'll okay. probably need your help with that, Mr. Okay. Professor, but... Um, Mr. Professor. Okay. Yeah, we do have the advantage of Bridger yes. uh, actually teaching us at one of yes. the universities in town. You do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I talk about this, I made the joke before we started recording about, uh, to undeveloped, uh, prefrontal cortexes. Cortices. Cortices. Dang it. <laughs> I still had another episode to like know, get it. I know. I still quibble with the difference interpersonally and intrapersonally. It doesn't matter. I'm That's sorry. true. Okay. Uh, but an analysis of variance is when you want to um, assess or measure um, some characteristic across three different groups. Um, and you do that uh, just within whatever software you're going to use. Um, and the way that uh, you interpret those results is by seeing, okay, can you say that there is a difference in this population measured by two variables? So okay. it's like gender and age. Okay. And uh, these three domains of uh, instrument. So if you have like multiple instruments uh, or multiple measures of an instrument okay. and you want to look at them all at once. So real fast, let's put those in the words of the study. So you would be measuring guilt and shame yep. across the variables of the uh, uh, attachment styles. Yes. So guilt and shame across ambivalent, avoidant, and secure. Yes. So you had the 3-2 the th- dynamic, which is when you know you need an ANOVA. You had the three different attachment styles measured across the guilt and shame, the two because different Because if dimensions. it was just a one-to-one, you yeah. would not need something so complex. No, you would right. not need an ANOVA. You could do something. Um, you would have to do a little bit more of a non-parametric test, which we can talk about other times. Later. 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 <laughs> yes. Um, but in assessing this, we are just looking at uh, an ANOVA, and then they developed an ANCOVA, which mm-hmm. is an analysis of covariance, which means when you want to throw in 
an extraneous variable that you okay. think might affect that relationship between the three attachment styles and guilt and shame. Okay, mm -hmm. so in the context of this article, they threw in the covariant of gender. Gender. Gender and, 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 and guilt and shame at times. So yes. when they were looking at how the different attachment styles um, uh, uh, scored on the experiences of guilt, they uh, controlled for their shame scores and then mm -hmm. vice versa. Mm -hmm. So when they, when they looked mm -hmm. at the attachment styles across shame, they controlled for guilt to see if there was any variance okay. in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because of the predetermined uh, result from literature that said gender has an effect in that girls tend to exhibit more self-conscious emotions yes. of mm -hmm. guilt and shame mm -hmm. than boys do, mm -hmm. yeah. um, just consistently across the literature. Yeah, and you also okay. want to see, it does if I say that um, a secure attachment is more prone to feel um, guilt, I want to make sure that I am... I'm controlling for shame to make sure that I'm actually talking about guilt and not and an not, interweave right. or yes. some like muddle mess of guilt and shame yes. together. Right. Which relies on a very explicit distinction made in your measures between mm -hmm. guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. If you're Which going they to did. yes, they did, yep. and that's why they had to choose such a discrete measurement. Categorical. Tool. Yes, measure. because it had to have those really defined this is what guilt is, and this is what shame is, this is what shame is not, and this is what guilt is not. They had yeah. to have that very explicit in the measure, as well as in what is all the three attachment yeah, styles, the attachment styles yeah. which it means you have to cut away any nuance. Mm -hmm. You have to be very just black and concrete. white. Here's concrete empirical examples of these instruments. Now I see you dissociating. <laughs> I'm not. I'm actually trying to not dissociate. Okay. Well, that's maybe that's better language. Of she's just playing with your necklace. I'm like... grounding myself with sensory bilateral stimulation. That's okay. what I'm doing. Okay. Okay. <laughs> what was that difficult? Yeah. <sighs> okay. But it's okay. I'm hanging with you. Okay. I have it all. Okay. I'm hoping that everyone else feels the same. Okay. But I, but I think that's enough. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We did go over our thirty second that's, time. That's we true. did. It's just okay. so hard to put into. Yeah, but it's really it is really important because then, and we'll probably talk about this of like guilt-free shame, yeah, and shame-free guilt, no, I, and how that comes up, and how their statistical analyses had to be very rigid in order to get there. Right. Yes, right. I think that there is no issue with understanding the relevance and importance. I think that in the world of statistics, what many of us struggle with mm. is the same thing that we struggle with when we get into algebra which is somehow x is supposed to mean a number <laughs> say what right so so it is the the intangibility and the irre the irrelatability that's not a word the lack of relationship relationship mm -hmm. yes. between um what is symbolized yeah and what is actually meant it's like i can't always bridge the gap yeah um and i know that that is a common experience. Yes. And, and for so me I'm with my students, <laughs> I have to just say what I said just now yes. and then say, what part didn't you understand? Right. And let's now work backwards from there. Yes. Which I when can't do we're that for in all these, the listeners. No. And we're, when we're in these conversations, I quite willingly play the role of please explain what you mean by that because yeah. um, I know that I'm not alone. Right. And I wish I had a, a whiteboard analysis. and my SPSS open for I, each of us. I don't. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> I do. Yeah, thank you, buddy. Uh, thank you. You, got, You're you guys welcome. can collude together nice to have in an your advocate. enjoyment of statistical analysis. But do you know what I'm excited about talking about? The what? results. <laughs> the general discussion section. I'm real excited by the that's general the discussion. And the general discussion. Yeah, that makes yes. a lot of sense. Yes, I, mean, I I read the whole thing, but there were certainly uh, some feelings of skimming. Uh, okay. <laughs> While I am reading every word, the the absorption rate went down right. significantly in the middle and sections. So too then did the retention rate that, that's of exactly those sections. Right. Yes, yes, yeah. but uh, that's okay because you would, the good stuff is in the general. You discussion. could measure that uh, quantitatively <laughs> if you wanted to. Someday you can do that analysis. Well, people have done it, and it's uh, right it's now. actually a mancova, which is a multiple analysis okay, of covariance. That's enough. All right. <laughs> uh, so in the general discussion section, one of the things that stood out was pretty much the first sentence, and so I want to maybe launch there if you guys. Did ready we talk for about that. the results yet? No, but we can. I mean, it's covered in the general discussion. Okay. Um, if you want to circle back and give a synopsis of the results. Well, yeah, I think the abstract, uh, just from what you would get in that, um, it was found that the clinical adolescents generally exhibited lower levels of self-conscious emotions as compared to non-clinical adolescents. Um, within this clinical group, communication to parents and peers was associated with higher levels of self-conscious emotions, and alienation was accompanied by higher levels. Okay, say what so, that actually means. Yeah, because there's a lot there. Right. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I think is like really um, struck me as odd is this idea that um, uh, what they would consider in the second study to be um, uh, indicative of a secure parent-child relationship mm-hmm. is increased communication and trust. Yes. Mm-hmm. And what they found is actually where the parents and the child reported high levels of communication and trust, Mm -hmm. they also found a higher level of self-conscious emotional experience. Yes. Which can seem like what it's maybe Mm -hmm. saying is that there's more emotional dysregulation where there is greater greater trust and communication. Yes. Or it could mean that they have greater self-awareness of their own internal experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's where, like, I think I was going is like, to me, the, the fact that they can express that they yes. are experiencing it yeah. is a collaborative strategy uh, that can lead to co-regulation more often and signifies to me that that process is reaching higher brain yeah. functions. Right. right. And right. when we know just um, f- from a neurobiological perspective, when we know that our needs are, that our internal experiences and needs are valid and um, that other people desire to know them, we're more likely than to be able to understand that we have right. them ourselves. Right. And to we be able are to more integrated yes. in our experience of it. Yeah. Meaning my my felt sense, my body sensations associated with yeah. shame can then be experienced by my articulate yes. conscious self. Well, we, and it can come out of my mouth and I can yeah. communicate about it. And we yeah. have a negative connotation as a culture of the word self-conscious. Hmm. We assume that it's negative. Well, self-aware. But I think, I think they mean it closer. from a self-conscious as in you are conscious of self. Yes, yeah. They you mean know. it in the context of self-awareness. Yes, yes. yes. And I think yeah. that's an important distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Which like also would um, go to the, the next part of the results where it's um, the clinical adolescents, those with uh, severe externalizing behaviors, um, generally exhibit yes. lower levels mm-hmm. of self-conscious emotions, which to um, to kind of say that in a different way, like those, the, like the kids who were um, experiencing to me what I would interpret as 
a more severe disintegration of mind yes or uh, fragmentation were unaware they were unable to acknowledge or engage the higher brain functions more frequently yes in a way that is sort of self-reflective self-referential their autobiographical um contents of self of self were less because because of that potentially there came the conduct Ah. problems yes yes Yes. welcome emotional parts yes because i could not articulate it out my mouth it came out through all of these various other means that children use for communication yes Mm-hmm. Yeah. Somatic energy. Yeah. 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 All right. General discussion. All right. General discussion. So starting with sentence number one. There you and go. And we can go from here. So from a theoretical perspective, it can be assumed that insecurely attached individuals are more susceptible to perceive situations as identity relevant. That's a good phrase. We're going to come back to that. Identity relevant and therefore are more prone to experience self-conscious emotions and in particular, maladaptive variants of guilt and shame. So there's several things in that one sentence that I want to talk about. So thing number one is identity relevant. Mm-hmm. I think that that is a phrase that I would like to unpack with you guys. Okay. Um, another bit is the experience of self-conscious emotions, which is what we were kind of just talking about. And so I, I think we can deepen that discussion around um, understanding, like, what does that actually mean if somebody is really able to be aware of their self-conscious emotions? Like, what is the neurobiological process and how is that relevant for therapeutic work for us? And then maladaptive variants of guilt and shame, yeah. which that phrase indicates that there's adaptive variants of guilt and shame arguably arguably and this is the argument that i want to have yes Yes. and this and i want to very just respectfully point out that the originator of maladaptive versus adaptive guilt and shame is so seminal to the field of shame research and that's Mm -hmm. helen block lewis Mm -hmm. that is where so much of this got its start in the 70s and really in the 60s of discussing what does shame actually mean Mm -hmm interpersonally and for identity relevance Mm -hmm. how do you talk about what it means to feel that i did something wrong versus i am wrong Mm -hmm. what does that mean Mm -hmm. um, for an ego organization standpoint yeah Yeah. which by the way that those phrases that you just said is the working definition of the differences between guilt and shame Um, that's generally accepted in the literature but also specifically used in this article yes Mm -hmm. that guilt is though the awareness and the feeling of i did something wrong yes it's action focused yes whereas shame is i am something wrong and that's how uh, identity focused helen buck lewis defined it yes the Mm -hmm. difference between guilt and shame and so that's where so much of our field gets its Mm -hmm. understanding psychometrically of what is the difference between guilt and shame well so right here feels like you know the relevant conversation of can there be adaptive versions of guilt can there be adaptive versions of shame depends on who you ask i know Mm -hmm. so i'm asking you guys what do you think I think to uh, make it a binary feels... Adaptive uh, versus maladaptive? Yeah, yeah. feels somewhat mm-hmm. uh, disingenuous because mm-hmm. in at one... This is a more Crittendinian way of looking at it is um, at one point, the shameful fragmentation was adaptive. Yeah. Yes. The uh, recapitulation of that shameful framework and way of interacting with the world may now in the present be maladaptive. Right. And so it's, to me, like, both and, but often, like, I would say, like, if I see a shameful presentation in my office with a client, Mm -hmm. I 
am going to voice to them that it was adaptive at one point, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm, I don't think I've ever said, and maybe I'd be open to it, but I don't think I've ever said that shame in the present is adaptive mm-hmm. as far as like, well, when that's not true because I'd even say that like, no, mm-hmm. no. Well, I don't think that, sorry, I was kind of going on maybe where your brain was going. But. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, I mean, yes, it is adaptive. Right. Like it is, it is based on how they are perceiving and interpreting and forming the information coming into them. Which that is the definition that we use of adaptive. Yes. It is their organizing principle yeah. for their experience yeah. in life. Yeah. It is their adaptation to their environment. Yeah. And their environment necessitated that adaptation for the purpose of survival and community cohesion. Mm-hmm. Self-continuity. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, guilt and, has a different connotation though for me. Yes. Like guilt... I definitely think like if you're taking responsibility for something you obviously didn't do, that feels maladaptive. Right. Um, unless, unless, yeah. See, inclusion like, into to, the attachment to was put it predicated in, on that. Yeah, like, to put it in a binary just doesn't feel right. I, mm-hmm. I'm very much willing to say I don't believe both and. Yeah, yeah, I don't believe in the binary. Yeah, I would I, go there too. I don't think it's fair to even conceptually start to introduce concepts in that way when it comes to ego organization. And identity development. So potentially a more spectrumized understanding of both guilt and shame and its functions. Oh, man. Okay. Do you guys know, and I'm just asking two of my closest friends on something that I myself cannot remember. Okay. There is, I think it's in physics, but it is, it is where spectrums overlap. It's a, it's like a pictograph where you have one spectrum and then another spectrum overlaps it at an intersecting point, And then you'll have three at one. And this is a name. Hmm. There's something. It's. It, I, I want know. to know the name so bad. Listeners, if you know, if you know, if you figure it out. This is phone a friend to phone a friend. Yeah. But it is a spectrum that intersects another spectrum, and another spectrum intersects that spectrum. So what I'm the reason I'm getting at that is because I think that's the way we need to start understanding this relationship: guilt, shame, and the attachment variance. And I want to use very complex understandings of the attachment spectrum, mm-hmm. which would necessarily then, or perhaps necessitate that multi-layered spectrum understanding that it's yeah. all that intersection. Yeah. Sorry if that was a tangent, but my brain has been trying to figure that out for, it's been like two months. Yeah, I still can't find it. Well, I don't know what to search on I Google. Bet the, I can't find it. I bet there's a it. listener who knows. Mm-hmm. It, it might be in metaphysics too. Yeah. I think well, in that's metaphysics, where... I was thinking of deep truths. Yes. And, okay. Uh, like yes. Ravelli. Uh-huh. Uh, Ravelli. Yeah. Like the okay. Two simple Newtonian uh-huh. truths that yes. okay. are incongruent come together. I love it. Sorry um, to spin us off on that. But to me, that would be so helpful if I knew that name because then I could say we could do this with this. Yeah. But it doesn't but, matter. But even Mel, generally, just having the spectrum. No, just the, the distinguishing. Um, between continuous spectrum versus discrete spectrum, uh, which I think is kind of in keeping with what we're talking about, that uh, yeah. integral overlap criteria. Um, yeah, that is, that is what I'm talking about. Yes, yes. yeah. And uh, so that is a physics concept. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Brain. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. It is. But I think, okay, so so the therapeutic relevance of that idea the the overlapping spectrum of guilt and shame and the way that it works on multiple levels of um, functioning, meaning my experience of myself as an individual, my experience of my relationship with a specific other, 
and then my experience of my relationship to the world at large. I think that both guilt and shame serve a specific function in both of those, um, yeah, in both of those subsets. And so maladaptive versus adaptive has to then be layered on top of, well, it depends on what context we're talking about. So mm. an easy example of this, it is maladaptive, meaning problematic and with consequence to conceptualize myself as flawed and defective and unworthy of love when it comes to my own experience of myself. That feels bad. It mm. creates discomforting affect states in my body to conceptualize myself that way. But at the same time, showing up in a community situation yeah. with that self-deprecation. Yeah, does that confirm? Has incredibly uh, adaptive mm -hmm. consequences to it. Because if I show up ready to apologize, ready yes. to take responsibility and ownership for somebody else's mistakes, that will endear me potentially to that person and get me more included and more accepted. And people might want me around more. And I'm not going to get the the large societal consequences of being the kid that always gets in trouble yeah which, so i don't i don't get any consequences other than that felt affect state that i privately experience all on my own which is that i am bad i am bad but is that a worthwhile price to pay if that means that i'm included in my group yeah if the self continues yeah this is yeah. itself though a very delicate spectrum because mm -hmm. we know from other literature like the disease avoidance architecture right we know that actually too much shame results in isolation behaviors. Right. right. That you are not going to continue to participate in the community that taught you you are to be shame-filled. Right. You now need to remove yourself from that. So that is to me But the very But the individual organism may still experience that as a positive. While, well, yeah. While they would they, say, I'm making the community better by removing its worst part. Yeah. That's right. And me. I'm not exposing myself to any relational risk of rejection because I have separated myself from those that may reject yeah. me. So this is one of the questions I had for the clinical population, which was the they had lower levels of self-conscious emotions. Right. So are you telling me they don't feel shame? I'm telling you they don't feel empathy. Well, that's interesting. Which I yeah, think is, is what they were actually measuring. Well, you'd have to get at the internal validity that's right. between this measure and an empathy scale. Yes. yes. I think, and this, this is from the experience of a parent, okay? Mm. <laughs> Dealing with a small child uh, that is incapable of empathy, but fully capable of shame, the way that you feel compelled to teach empathy to a child, it is almost impossible to not include a potentially shaming element in that. Mm. Trying to find the language and the articulation that is simple enough yeah. for a small child to actually connect with. Can we give an example? Almost entirely shame-based. That's coming up in my mind of like, how would I handle the situation? Mm -hmm. Why should my toddler not hit someone else? Right. So the only thing that I personally have figured out yeah. in that situation is to say, when you do that, it hurts. Yeah, exactly. And then my three-year-old says to me, "So, but I want to. Exactly. That's literally that's literally what she says to me. Yes. And, and, and then what do you say? Well, that 
that's bad. That's bad. <laughs> it's yes. bad that you want to hurt people. It's bad that oh you want. Oh my god! Yeah, it's bad that you want the and and because it, it comes down that down to that because these small bodies are so full of the compulsion to just act on whatever impulse they have, and the the desire to stop the acting on the impulse is so challenging. And the most effective way to halt a impulse like that is through a shame mechanism yeah. and through an overt. Shame mechanism. One of the things that my brain goes to is like, we don't want to hurt people, and that hurts people. What does that message send then to the toddler? Well, they do want to hurt them, and so what does that mean about them that right. they're not like you? That's what I mean. Like when yeah. when you're sitting there as a parent with a child that's hitting you, by the way, mm. because you know your body is in a fully activated state, and so good luck holding onto your prefrontal cortex while you're being yeah. demolished by a three year old, right? Yeah. So you're sitting there and you're trying to find an articulate way. To not shame your child, but still create behavioral shift. Yes. Uh, in my experience, I don't know. Well, and I don't think it's possible to avoid it, but it is then you need to be able to speak to it. Right. And it's almost like you have to create the affect state of yes. shame and then remove it right afterwards. And it's point very, at it and say, yes. this isn't my intention. I don't yes. want that. Yes. So, so what you're doing is bad, but... That doesn't mean you're bad. You are not bad. Yeah. But when you're three years old, can you actually hold that affect reality? Yeah. I have no idea. No. And to me, it's just about repetition. I don't know. Like any other way. And hoping that you're, you know, shaping their affective circuitry so that, you know, you fire that sequence of threat of isolation and rejection, um, but then you don't. Right. Right. And so, so, you know. But you said they don't have empathy, which I think there is a difference between your toddler Mm-hmm. and nine to 18 year olds so how did you get there but is there that's my point if you're talking about neurobiologically yes and and if somebody has had significant developmental trauma developmentally they may not be that different like the the development of empathy happens through attunement yes it happens through the the mirroring and the the reflection of their affect states and so if nobody was empathetic in their direction, they have not developed the empathetic skills to then apply to other people. And especially if they received shame without attunement, if they were disciplined or punished with shame without any attunement of their affect states in response to that, they would have no development of empathetic skill in response. I'm seeing your face, Caleb. What does that mean? Um, <laughs> just like so many thoughts going on. Well, no, I, I have a couple. Uh, one of them was Is it just that confirming. Idea? Yeah. Okay. One of them was confirming, like, to go back to Perry. Of, yes. Um, Memories of fear. Yeah. And yeah. and that, to me, is like goes back to what you talked about in that opening paragraph of the general discussion about um, insecurely attached individuals are more susceptible to perceive situations as identity relevant. Right where those um, memories of fear that are embedded deep in the core parts of the brain are still there for a Mm nine-year-old if they've not accessed it and processed through it in a collaborative way with someone else. Their question hasn't been answered. They're still trying to answer that question of who am I and am I okay? Yeah, Yeah. And, Yeah. and, and in that way, I mean, if you think about where that fear is housed, it's in the part of the brain that the three-year-old would be experiencing as a whole brain. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that's a very overgeneralized experience, yeah. but or statement there, but um, to some degree, that's in an abstract way. That's, that's what it is. And, and so then the nine-year-old is going to display a, like a, an association between social threat and life threat much yeah. more, um, 
congruently with a three-year-old than an average nine-year-old. Mm. That's, I think, affirming what you're saying based on kind of what we've talked about before of some of Perry's work and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, and I think there is, to me, well, and just in my awareness of the literature, such a difference in who they then uh, associate as other me's or other like me's. Um, for those that have experienced trauma early in life and have these um, internalized uh, experiences of shame that have now resulted in externalizing behaviors, they have a more narrow understanding of who um, can I be vulnerable with and open to. And everybody else gets this hard exterior Mm -hmm. where I seem to have no empathy of how my actions or behaviors affect you. And in fact, I kind of hope it's negative because I don't want you to feel and in any way that I might be open to connection with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that to me is a shame-based mm-hmm. neurobiological development. Yeah. You have to, you have to fragment yourself yes. in order to create some sort of self-continuity through those experiences yeah. in which you are causing harm and, yeah. and can't face the reality of that. Yeah. You can't be open to the emotions that then get bounced back to you yeah uh paying attention to the hurt mm-hmm. person yes paying attention to your own body as you pay attention to the hurt yeah. person what does like, it mean mm-hmm. that i did that mm-hmm. yeah 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 so like to answer your question it does not mean that the clinical populations don't feel shame yes because their scores of self-conscious Conscious emotions. emotions are lower right um and, it means and that, that they are not self-conscious yeah. of the shame yeah. Yeah. yeah and i think that's what we're generally like i think that's what drove us to say what are we going to, like, why is shame so important for us to talk about? Mm-hmm. It's because I think sometimes we're overly cognitive, overly top-down in our orientation towards shame and the fragmentation mm-hmm. that is there. And um, to sort of get back down into the um, understanding of the neurosequential yeah, and the neurodevelopmental adapta- ad- adaptability of shame. Yeah. And then see how that comes into our, our clinical yeah. offices. So, yeah, to me, it, it is less useful to talk about is it maladaptive or adaptive and just then to assume that it is adaptive. And mm-hmm. so the mm-hmm. organism is then using it for something mm-hmm. that to me is going to get it yes. helping us explain right. what's actually going on. And therapeutically, that is much Absolutely. more relevant to our work is understanding how was this guilt or the shame presentation adaptive to the environment that they were raised in and how does it continue to be adaptive in their current situation and how might they find it useful Mm -hmm. in the future Mm -hmm. because yeah yeah because we have to contend with the ways that their environment is continuing to reinforce the strategies that they have chosen so i want to just kind of highlight these phrases that we've mentioned but they're just really good and so i want to say them out loud and then just kind of see how you guys react to them which is this guilt-free shame versus shame-free guilt. So immediately when I, I say that, second one. yes, shame-free guilt sounds like what I am trying to do with my toddler and hopefully achieving sometimes. <laughs> yes, because, and I want you to speak to the intention you have yes, in that. Because if, if a child does not have any sensation of guilt, then they struggle to have a sensation of empathy. One is almost a precursor to the other. And in order to get along in normal social situations, having the awareness of, oh, my behavior potentially hurts somebody else and I would like to rectify that because that relationship matters to me 
is incredibly helpful for all kinds of important things, you know, practical things like school, social relationships, etc. But then later on in life, just real intimate relationships and fostering, you know, uh, interdependency and the kind of relationships that you hope that your kid has and you, we hope that our clients have. And so we need that sensation of guilt to almost be this gut check of, oh, crap, I did something that harmed a relationship that's potentially important to me yeah. or presented myself in a way that is not who I really know myself to be. That yeah. it's a it's a moment of feeling my behavior being incongruent with my own identity. Uh, yeah, with my understanding of myself and without that awareness, we'll be perpetually confused by the reactions that we're getting from other people. We'll be kind of bumbling through relationships without that feedback system in our own body that says, hey, what you just did probably rubs some people the wrong way. You should probably, you know, go back and repair there. You don't have to feel like you're, uh, you know, worthless yeah. or unlovable human being, but you do have to be aware that you're imperfect and occasionally make relational missteps. Yeah. And to me, that's what shame-free guilt is all about. That's what we're going for is that it's the gut check that helps us evaluate and reshape our behavior um, without then internalizing a self state yeah. of I'm worthless. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Caleb, you and I come from a program where we had one professor who uh, spoke to shame and guilt. And I'm wondering what you th- you're thinking, just reflecting on that about guilt free shame mm. specifically. Yeah. Um, well, I think. Um, my and I actually worked with the Tosca, which is like they pay an homage to. I did some research on mm-hmm. shame using the Tosca in uh, a different country with some group therapies. And um, I think there's just like a um, I don't know. I, I, as far as shame free guilt and guilt free shame, like I, I think the way we were taught was that um, guilt is totally good and shame is uh both good and bad mm-hmm. and i like yeah I, I think i in my clinical work with and i work with this population 9 to 18 most of the time i think i would i have many conversations about the necessity of guilt yeah in its embodied recognition mm-hmm. of harm to the other mm-hmm. and so i want to have a shame-free guilt and yes. i want to mm-hmm. i want that to emerge in my sessions in an, an embodied way yes um and to me, I think natural consequences of behavior, like within parenting, yeah. are great examples of where guilt can be drawn out mm-hmm. and shown as, yeah, I mean, what you did had consequences. Mm-hmm. And those things are not to be handled separate from community, mm-hmm. but they do have implications for how we are to repair or right. to reattune right. to those types of situations. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So natural consequences to mm-hmm. me are, are wonderful teachers of Mm-hmm. guilt and mm-hmm. hopefully not shame but i think you know when when you're dealing with children that are really young well and really children of all ages consequences are um quite unnatural in a lot of situations because we want to shield our children from the actual natural consequences of their behavior because the truth is the natural consequence of hitting somebody multiple times is that that person won't want to be around you mm. that person will go away and not be near you. But as a parent, I cannot give my child the full reality of the natural consequence of their behavior um, for many reasons. I don't want to, first of all. Second of all, that would be child abuse. <laughs> so I'm not going to do that either. Um, but I think like that, that concept of 
trying to provide our child an approximation of natural consequences with an appropriate filtering for where they are developmentally um, has everything to do with this balance between guilt and shame of understanding guilt to be a really relevant tool for social navigation and shame being a um, overly powerful tool that is overly used and always comes with extra unnatural consequences of worthlessness and unlovability and rejection and social isolation um, that go way farther than is necessary. But in our society, shame is a natural consequence because we do shame many people. And so that idea that I could give a child or even a client that we're working with an approximation of what they're actually going to encounter, I think is kind of an illusion. It's more about understanding how to set them up for the healthiest self-understanding that we can provide for them Mm -hmm. and hoping that that foundation will lead them uh, through those challenges, whether somebody else gives them uh, a shame response or a guilt response, we're hoping to embed a self-referencing response of guilt, shameless guilt, um, for their own internal navigation. Yeah. Um, you know, Brene Brown keeps coming to mind because obviously she's a shame, shame yeah, shame researcher, and uh, she does qualitative research on this. And one of the stories that she tells. <laughs> um, is about the difference between a shame-filled child and a guilt-free child is that the shame child, the the child that experiences shame, if she gets in trouble and humiliated by a teacher at school, she will come home from school and go to her room and close the door and not tell her mom what happened. Because Mm. what's the news? I already know that I'm worthless. There's nothing to share. Versus the child that experiences guilt, but a shame-free guilt is going to come home and say, Mommy, guess what happened today? Mm. Right? And in that space, in the shameless guilt space, there's now an adult available for an attuned processing of that affect state. Um, And that provides a sense of relief, which actually um, reinforces the guilt cycle of I do something, I get in trouble, I feel bad, I come to my caregiver and they attune with me and help me release that. Shame takes us into ourselves and we never come out again. Mm. And I think that, you know, both as a parent and as a therapist, that is a very relevant idea that when we see our clients in that shame place, trying to maneuver them into experience that as guilt, we don't have to remove all blame from them because there's plenty of situations where, no, they should be feeling something and we can go too far in the direction of trying to de-shame them. And it feels incongruent and disingenuous to our client because they know they screwed up. They know that they did something wrong. And so understanding the usefulness of guilt in that space and how to navigate that, I think is really relevant to our work. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a dynamic of that that I want to bring up particularly because I, I work with it all the time. And Mm -hmm. one of the, um, um, significant, uh, not significant. They kind of, they do a passing homage to it is uh, one of the surprising findings was that, uh, among the clinical sample of the adolescents, 
they were more trusting of their peers yes. than they were the parents. Right. Yes. And um, they were sort of surprised by that. <laughs> but I think it goes yeah. to your, yeah. what this, yeah. like the story, that, the vignette you just laid out. Why would I go to the adult? Yeah. 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 When... And, I, like I see the not surprising um, at all. Yeah, no. it's not surprising yeah. to me. And I and I see this all the time in in the residential facility that I work in, is these kids that the, the um, their peers are going to collude and augment mm-hmm. a sense of self continuity mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. avoidant of the pot- potential shame right. that they think they'll feel if they bring up the fact that they made a mistake. Right. So they anticipate a shame. So then they. Yeah, they kind of dissociate. Dis- from dissociate. That. They uh, avoid a caretaker. Mm-hmm. They'll avoid me as the clinician. Not tell me bad things are happening. Right. Yeah, uh, and and I have to have that discussion of like, okay, you're doing something that's like inappropriate and and not helping you, and it's actually hurting other people. That doesn't mean you're a bad person, mm-hmm. or that you can't come talk to me about mm-hmm. that. Yeah, or that I'm gonna yell at you when I find out about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 but but there's that sort of like, I'd rather trust the peers mm-hmm. who were all going to collude and probably scapegoating someone yeah. of saying like, well, that, that teacher, that staff, that mom, that dad, that person is just, their a, fault. Yeah, yeah, they're mean, they're bad, they're ugly, whatever. Um, <laughs> Cause that's somehow relevant. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. And it shows up <laughs> in the most erroneous ways. Uh-huh. Um, rather than addressing the more vulnerable perspective of saying, yeah, I don't know. I got in trouble today. Uh-huh. And facing the potential mm-hmm. guilt, mm-hmm. Um, and and experiencing that guilt without the shame, right, but their but system if, anticipates the right. shame. That's right. Uh, response because if they if that is all they have ever experienced and they haven't had that relief cycle of I I feel the guilt I go to my caregiver and that caregiver affirms the guilt but also affirms that I am still loved and accepted as a human being. They don't know the relief of that process. And that's one of the disconfirming experiences that we can offer to our clients. But there, there is a layer of, um, yeah, resistance to that. You yeah. know, not, not a chosen resistance, but a self-protection because they would never have experienced that before. And to trust us to actually show up in that way, there's no way their system is going to be ready for that initially. It takes yeah. quite a while to get to that One point. of the things, and this is in the limitation section, that they were using different scales to assess the different populations. Um, but in their use of one of the scales, trust and alienation, were some of the two dynamics. I want to talk about alienation because mm-hmm. I think it is something so central to what we're actually talking about mm-hmm. in why a person might uh, be less likely to bring a very um, almost threatening experience that they have to their identity mm-hmm. uh, to somebody that has within them their connection to the community. Why would I bring something that makes me feel shameful to my mom? Uh-huh. Um, if I'm insecure in that attachment because mm-hmm. I'm fearing alienation will be her response yes. that she will make me feel even worse yes. instead of trust, which then says I can bring that to mm-hmm. them and expect that they're going to help me make sense of it and to help me know that it was more so what I did and less about who I am. I feel mm-hmm. like that's a beautiful articulation of the relationship between guilt and shame and attachment. Yeah. That is how it's born. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, and then like, okay, so we've sort of talked about that in a depersonalized manner between a parent and a child, but 
when we hearken back to what we've talked about about fostering dependency mm-hmm. yes uh, and mm-hmm. and secure dependency yeah. with our clients and and getting to a place where you sort of can ask yourself how um courageous is oh, my client and their disclosure of mm-hmm. um potentially shame inducing or oh, fear inducing let me tell you stimuli of their week an ancova yes. that i'd like to run is on <laughs> trust alienation and courage oh hmm. To me, that would be such a beautiful, specifically attachment-based courage. Yeah. It would be amazing. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. Are there any other from, do you have a thought? Oh, so many. That's a thought phase. You know, I was just uh, spinning out into culturally relevant dynamics of trust, alienation, and courage. And yes. Current cultural struggles around racism. That is an ANCOVA well, that this I is, would be interested that's in. That's what we're looking at. That's why this article is in here. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. fascinating. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I want to just maybe by way of grand summary and closing this mm-hmm. this episode, the article is called Bound to Feel Bad About Oneself. Mm-hmm. So I would love just after this conversation, this intersubjective space that we all entered together today, what you make of that title um, and maybe just closing thoughts on what you took away from the article. Bound to Feel Bad About Oneself. I feel like they are suggesting that there is some inevitability in this. Yeah. Um, which I don't know how I feel about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think on one hand, there's a part of me that would like to say there is such thing as a secure enough attachment that there are humans that maybe get to bypass the experience of real deep internalized shame. But I have yet to meet one. Mm. I hope I do someday. I'd be very interested in what that kind of person is. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And when I come from just a, a little bit more of probably an existentially pessimistic view. <laughs> yes. And just say that shame is um, an inevitable and universal experience, mm-hmm. even if mm-hmm. it's in the unconscious, okay. unsymbolized way of like they can't, they're not self-conscious of it. Right. You have every fragmentation of the self has a level of shame to it. Yes. Which is why we fragment in the first place. Yeah. So neurobiologically, it is a universal experience mm-hmm. to you me. You have the hardwiring for it. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you have the various strategies of dealing with it. Mm-hmm. Your body, your biology has it, which means it's been there for a really, really long mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. for our biology to be very well equipped to handle it. What do you think, and this may be a question for our other podcast, but maybe we can just give a little teaser here. Are you talking about Moat, Mind of a Therapist? Yes, Mind of a Therapist. On Patreon. Um, On Patreon. Yeah, Yeah. you should go listen to it. (laughs) This is one of the questions we would tackle, and I'd like for us to briefly give attention to it. We've talked about the the issues with binary distinctions between adaptability or uh, adaptive and maladaptive Mm -hmm. nature. Mm -hmm. If something has been true to our biology for eons, evidenced by the fact that we have mechanisms designed specifically to deal with it. Mm -hmm. What do we think about a non-binary distinction between the experience of shame as human beings? That it just is. Is it then necessary? Yes. Mm -hmm. This is interesting. What's it like to say that? It just feels very true. Okay. Because to me, that's the same thing as saying it's a universal, like it's, mm-hmm. it's well, inevitable. Okay, okay, wait, 
I thought you would say that. <laughs> okay, so the difference between universal and necessity to me is important. Yeah. But I think to this article, Bound to Feel Bad About Oneself, it assumes that, and I think, Mel, that's to your point, it assumes that an experience like this could lead to, which would be the, the universal, but does lead to, I don't know. And that's where I think the necessity of shame can really be seen of, is this just a, a construct that those of us who are less aware of the implications of how our behavior affects one another, which is empathy, mm. do we fall into shame okay, more? Okay, so, so this is when we're going to get real into where we would go with mind of a therapist. Yeah. So I'm just making the hard shift right now okay and, and for the the listeners that have been with us for this whole time. an hour and 10 minutes i feel like they're in <laughs> you, you deserve yeah this. you're yes. you're gonna finish the yeah. episode hopefully yeah. please stay yeah okay, please, pl- stay. please stay because this is about to get good oh, are we ready i'm in ready? just go for it full send okay okay so as human beings the great mistake of our evolutionary process oh. is that we did not leave behind the basic mechanisms of our reptilian brain before we evolved the neocortical processes of our prefrontal cortex. This is what I mean by that. Shame is not problematic until we are conscious of it. I have some I know you do, I know, but you have to you have to let me finish. Okay. Okay. Now And we don't have yes, time Caleb. to unpack this. Oh, we do. No, we're, we've no, decided we don't. we're going we full send. We don't. So by conscious, what I am going to nuance levels of consciousness. Demasio, right? Yes, now? yes, that yes. But the the consciousness that a mammal is capable of before they evolve the neocortex. Okay. So can a puppy feel shame? Absolutely. Yes. Right? Tone of voice, there it is. Absolutely. Yeah. They, their body manifests it, etc. Do they have the kind of maladaptive shame-based implications that we see in human beings? No. Maybe. Wait. So I, you're saying a dog doesn't engage in malad... Uh, experience. Present tense maladaptive uh, interpersonal behaviors, meaning that they have not, they're not carrying traumatized fragmentation into a caring home and therefore not engaging in oh, no, no. social that, behaviors. That's true. That's but rescue that, dogs yes. everywhere. Here, yeah. Here's yeah. what's different. Dogs and other mammals do not have an autobiographical consciousness. They don't hold, they don't. I they feel don't. like there's no way that we can say that right now, but I'm curious to know how you're making that assertion. I'm down if you've got the the evidence. I think I do, but I need time. Okay. But I want to continue this discussion because this is something that I think is really important. Dolphins, we know, do have autobiographical memory. Yeah, I haven't hung out with a dolphin to know if they're plagued by shame the way that we are as humans. <laughs> Maybe they are. I don't know. But it is interesting. So go continue your thought. I'm sorry. Yes. So so the the way the way that humans experience the autobiographical shame story, I think is uh, unique, or at least unique to mammals with a very evolved neocortex. So the experience of shame from the majority of the mammalian kingdom is very different than we we experience it as humans. 
the pain of shame when you don't have conscious autobiographical memory is very different. It is much more transitory the way that we experience some of the other emotions that come and go, but don't get hooked into our autobiographical understanding of identity. Doggies don't walk around with a sense of this is me in the world. They're just being dogs, hanging out, doing their thing. Are you saying they don't think that way or they don't behave that way? They don't, they don't, um, hold consciousness of themselves from a moment to moment basis that way right so they don't walk around holding the story of this is who i was when i was a puppy this is who i am now and this Mm. is who i'm going to be this is my past this is my present this is my future which is how so from neuroscientist perspective that's how they define autobiographical consciousness you introed this by it's well, you didn't say it, but it is a nice pun. It's a shame. That it's we, a shame that, that we're we aware of our shame. Is it? Because I think that there is a, and this was getting to the question I was asking, I think there is an, an, an adaptive nature to the fact that we can reflect on self-states of the past with a recognition of, is this shame-filled or not? Interesting. Yes, it is adaptive, but it's also painful. And the the... So if it's adaptive, though, that to me gets at the answer of, no, it's not shameful, or it's not a shame that we didn't develop it What I'm saying is that it's a shame that it's so painful to us. Oh, absolutely. Right? Like, if we could could experience guilt, Mm -hmm. just guilt, without the heaviness, the despair that we experience in the place of shame, which gets much closer to the the visceral fear of annihilation and separateness forever like it's yeah. it's the darkest place that a human being can go and is the only thing that leads to our own self-annihilation which humans as, as mammals we are unique in our capacity to desire self-annihilation mm-hmm. other mammals do not do that yeah. um or at least none that we've observed mm-hmm. um and so that that is what i mean the <laughs> so fun right now. You need to comment, Caleb, because <laughs> you're holding in so what, much. What are you thinking? There's. <laughs> I mean, there's just you should just go. Oh, okay. This is a moat. This, this, this is a moat, and I do like. I am very curious about it because I think that as a species, we are in a spot where we are holding tension hmm. between the the infrastructure, the biological infrastructure of our nervous system. And where we're trying to get, which is a elevated consciousness that expands beyond me as an individual and can hold um, the other and the other's complexity as well as my own individual experience. And we're right in that tension. And I actually feel like at this point in our evolution, shame is holding us back oh, from that. See, okay, this is where, and it might be a moat, I know. It is a moat. <laughs> to me, I'm a little bit more optimistic about what shame is still doing in our neurobiology to me it just feels like something we would have let go of so long ago why do you say that because just purely by my gut feeling of what is in a human or what's in any evolutionary moment in time but evolution happens in fits and starts it's not a gradual process i think there's there's some theories across the spectrum that sure. would point to microevolution, especially of cortical processes. And that to me is where we start asking the question, okay, why though is shame one of the most 
universal human experiences across time and we can point to thousands of years ago where humans were demonstrating shameful characteristics I, right i think one thing i'm i'm going to kind of because i don't i don't see us getting unless you're gonna ground it but i don't i don't think i see us getting to a place where we um come to like a resolution in this episode and so i'm curious how this conversation carries over into the next when we talk about I've got the archi- for that. architecture yes. of um, disease avoidance disease architecture. Yes. Avoidance. yes, and this and is where I'm getting at. I've got, I've got a lead into it that. It still plays a role, and I want us to talk about it. Yeah. So, so here's the grounding element. What I believe has potentially happened for humans as a species is that individual organisms, in order for the sake of survival, had to be in groupings, tribes, et cetera, right? Yeah. So the number of individual organisms in a normal tribe was incredibly small in comparison to the number of organisms that we are in contact and communication with on a regular basis now. So the amount of feedback that we get from different organisms about who we are as an organism is way faster, way more intense, and way more numerous than our neurobiology was equipped for. And previously, it was very adaptive for my neurobiology to keep me in good standing with the tribe and for me to be very uh, motivated to, you know, resolve differences and to, um, you know, let go of individual needs in order to uh, stay with the tribe, etc. All of that was incredibly adaptive. But when we're using that same neural architecture and trying to fit into a tribe of the entire human race, we run into major issues because we weren't we, we were not evolved, we are not evolved enough to handle the amount of difference at the same time as trying to fit in. And so our neuroarchitecture has not evolved at the same rate as our connectivity as a society, as a as, global society. I would has say evolved. as some of us choose to subject ourselves to, because to me, I don't have any any social media. And I'd be curious to look at some of the long-term like longitudinal outcome studies but hun i think that's a privileged statement it is yeah like as a as a cis white male that's that's true for you yes that you you have the luxury of doing that right but many I'm people not, would not i'm not listening to the feedback that could be there and you have the the privilege yeah. of ignoring the feedback because it does not have daily consequence for yes. you being you in society yes and what i'm saying is is if you are in any kind of minority you don't have that luxury so staying open to that feedback is a matter of survival for us yeah. like we have to be aware of all of the feedback coming at us because somebody might want to kill us yeah like that's real yeah. for a lot of human beings walking around in the world and that's not coming from social media that's coming from the guy on the street yeah. And that's coming from, I'm trying to get insurance and I'm begging this person to help me get what I need for my yeah. basic survival. So it's it's not just the, the normal things that we think of when we think of overexposure. It's that we're put in these melting pot societies and dealing with, you know, tribalism, but I don't have an actual tribe that is like me. And that is incredibly confronting to our neurobiology. We yeah. don't know how to process that. Yeah. And that article gets mm-hmm. into that. Yes. I'm very excited yeah. to talk yeah. about that. About next week? Yeah. yeah. And I, and I also think what you're saying, and I like that you brought up, you know, culture, uh, this moment that we're in, um, uh, kind of the curtains being pulled back on yeah. some of those experiences and yes. being open to that, and how in more and more in the clinical realm, I think what we're saying is that shame is more complex than good or bad. Yes. Yes. And there is a there's an impetus on counselors to recognize in our insecurely attached. Um, clients, yeah. which would be 
in our paradigm, pretty much everyone has some sense of fragmentation mm-hmm. yeah. in their self. And so with every client, recognize where that fragmentation is, where the shame is in that, and code it both with, I understand, and let's like let's do something different. Yeah. Right. I understand why this emerged. And actually, yeah. that's amazing that your system did that. Mm-hmm. Yes. And... You don't have to do that right now yeah or anymore yeah and let's work in such a way where yeah. we can help your body recognize yeah that. find a different self-protective strategy rather than mm-hmm. shame to believe yeah. that yeah. self yes. is bad yes and this yeah. study grounds us in very quantitative data that says the proneness to feel bad about oneself yeah. oneself not what one did mm-hmm. but oneself mm-hmm. is very much correlated with their attachment yeah. yes and in the insecure presentations, you can expect yeah. that there is the fragmentation and the shame. Well, yeah, and, and some a point that we didn't really even elucidate further was that the very nature of a secure attachment means that there is the attunement, which you mm-hmm. did say, mm-hmm. but that that itself would lead to greater self-conscientiousness. Yeah. That yeah. by attunement from other, we learn attunement with self. Yes. Yeah. And yes. so it is then with insecure attachment styles where that isn't true, we see mm-hmm. the lack of yeah. a self-conscientiousness. Yeah. Which they found that. Yes. The, yeah. the That's what I'm saying. We didn't secure, really yeah. like hit on that, but that is a major finding point. So if the last 20 minutes of this episode felt like <laughs> we went somewhere else, we did. But that is also the intention of this podcast, which is that we're we're talking about evidence-based research. And that doesn't just end when the, the limitation section yes. ends. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't just end in what they found and then you stop reading. Mm-hmm. When you start talking about it with other clinicians, that's when really interesting moments happen yeah. of, well, what implications does this research have for the way I view myself and the way I view my clients and the way, the way that I, I interact with others? other humans about this? Yeah. Humans across time. Yes. And where is this research going? Um, where since 2014 has the has the research universe of shame gone yes and we've gone so far and yeah. so to me this is a great representation of what it's like to intersubjectively discuss evidence-based material right. and to right. say now let's go broader mm-hmm. think deeper mm-hmm. about this mm-hmm. and with all my students this is what i tried to yeah. <laughs> foster is this nature of well yeah but think about it yeah. what does that mean what does self-consciousness mean mm-hmm. when it comes to shame and guilt yeah because to me, yeah. just flat out self-conscious, I would ex- I would assume that insecurely attached individuals would have greater levels of mm-hmm. shame and guilt mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. than they would for secure, mm-hmm. just by the nature of, you know. But what does that mean that that's not true? Exactly. Yeah. And not demonstrably true in this yeah. population with these measures. Yeah. And that we still need to think deeper mm-hmm. about how. And in- it's so relevant to talking to a client because. Absolutely. We can assume that, yeah, they probably have more shame, but they're not going to know it. Yes. And what does that implication? Yes. Yeah. What implications yeah. does that? And how does exactly that shape have? our work? Yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you guys for a great conversation. Yeah. Again. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. Psh, psh, high fives. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Thanks, guys. Um, thank you so much for listening. Um, check out our Patreon and tune in for the next episode. Yeah. And if you want to join us on Mind of a Therapist episodes where we basically uh, yeah. talk about whatever we want to for yes. long stretches of time you can Which join us on patreon we are going to re well, rediscuss yeah, now that I'm topic super about yeah. shame yeah. and yeah. the human species yeah so yeah. that's the evolution of the human yeah. patreon.com backslash beyond healing center. center yeah all right guys good night see you next time thanks for listening to this episode 
Find us on our website at beyondhealingcenter.com slash media. Also, subscribe to our Patreon to support us at patreon.com slash beyondhealingcenter. Find all episodes on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for listening.